back to Portfolio Rest, where we take your questions and answer them, provide some context, a little analysis. Remember, our email is askthecompoundshow at gmail.com. Today's sponsor is CraneShares. CraneShares is an investment company that allows you to invest in China, but they also have funds focused on the transition to renewable energies. Duncan, you can behind this one. Yeah. Uh, we actually had Luke Oliver from CraneShares on, on Animal Spirits, I think just about a year ago, talking about investing in carbon allowances. Uh, Luke actually has a new piece up outlining how they work, how they tie into climate change, along with the investing implications. Worth a read. If you want to read this piece and learn more, go to craneshares.com. Uh, <clears throat> Duncan, we emptied our inbox for the last show of the year. I have a few questions on the stock market that we brought in Bill to answer all your year-end text questions. Uh, I just want to let you know, my Christmas present to you is that I, I, I let go of the idea of doing a 12 days of finance. <laughs> I thought about it. I had it in the hopper. Some good musical opportunities. As long as you would have uh, been able to sing them, that would have been good. Yes, I I would have had to. My gift to you is not embarrassing myself by going through with it. So Merry Christmas. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's talk about the the live show at the end. So let's just do, let's get into the first question. Okay. So up first today, we have a question from Brian who writes, big fan of a show and all the compound content. I know no one can predict the future, yada, 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 but just between us, what's going to happen with the stock market next year? I'm not sure I can handle another year like 2022. Same, honestly. It's uh, <laughs> it's pretty rough. The, the good news is big, huge back-to-back losses are pretty rare, but life would be a lot easier if I could just give you the answer to the question. I guess the good news is, is there's not much connective tissue from one year to the next in terms of gains and losses. So, John, do a chart on here. I did a simple analysis of the average annual stock market returns following an up year or down year, going back to 1928. And the average return following an up year is 9.8%. The average return following a down year in the prior year is 9.2%. Really doesn't tell you much, so, so not much help here. But I know what you're thinking. A lot of people would come back and say, well, Ben, how many times has the stock market been up following a year where the Fed is in a tightening cycle or when inflation remains above average or when there's a, such a high probability of a recession or when interest rates have risen so precipitously or when there's going to be another Fast and Furious installment released in the following year. Can you believe they're on number 10 already? I, I can't remember the last one I saw, if I'm being honest. Did they teach you about sequels in, in film school? Because that's obviously all you need to know to, to make hit movies. That and horror films, easy money. I guess so. So here's, the, here's my one big takeaway that's not really groundbreaking. The stock market is inherently unpredictable. Uh, sure, we could all we all understand like the current environment and what it looks like, but that doesn't help you figure out how things are going to shake out. Just think about how many people at the end of 2019 coming into the year forecast a pandemic that would cause lockdowns, quarantines, millions of people working from home, schools being shut down, the worst quarterly GDP print in modern history, and then the biggest government spending package since World War II. How many people had that on their bingo card? Of course, no one. Coming into this year, how many people predicted that a crazy person in Russia would invade an innocent country that would cause an upheaval in food and energy prices, and then we'd have the highest inflation in four decades, and the Federal Reserve would be actively rooting for the stock market to come down? No one predicted that, right? No. John, do the, uh, let's do a tweet on here. This is Bloomberg's Jonathan Farrow. He posted this week at the year-end 2022 stock market forecast from all the big banks and Wall Street firms. This was done at the beginning of the year, of course. You can see the range is anywhere in the S&P from 4,400 to 5,400. Right now... The S&P is trading around 3,800. Now, the point here is not to dunk on these Wall Street people who make forecasts. That's part of their job. But it's just to show how ludicrous it is to think you have the ability to predict what's going to happen over any year-long period. Sure, someone's bound to get lucky and nail it once just because of the sheer number of people making predictions these days. But 
Well, you guys have no idea what's going to happen, right? I mean, that's you just sure. It's it's kind of fun to put stuff out there, but you have to think more in terms of probabilities and then like tail events that could upend any of those probabilities. So I have no idea what's going to happen in 2023. Neither does anyone else. And I guess this is the reason you have a plan in the first place. If you knew it was going to happen, there would be no need for an investment plan. This is that's the whole point of a plan is because you have to kind of think in terms of probabilities and ranges of outcomes, and that's that's where I stand. So not much help. Uh, but I don't all know that being said, what is, your, what is your S&P target for 2023? Well, what did you say yesterday? <laughs> if stocks go up, you have a target, and if stocks go down, you have a target? It's yeah, not I a bad way if to stocks play. go up 45, 50, and if they go down 3,600. Okay, that's not a bad way to look at it, because it gives you a range of returns, right? Yeah. I don't know. All right, let's do another one. Okay. Uh, question two today is from Swayze. Cool name. Uh, higher inflation should be good for stocks. Not bad, right? If prices are rising in the U.S. economy, it means some group, corporations, the government, or individual taxpayers, is generating more income. If rent is up, my landlord is making more money. If gas is up, energy companies are making more money. If wages are up, individuals are making more money. The data shows that wage increases haven't kept up uh, with inflation and taxes haven't gone up, which means that corporations, not individuals or the government, have to be the ones benefiting, right? So corporate earnings in aggregate are only getting better in this inflationary environment. Is the stock market getting this wrong? Usually the stock market is right. I'll say that. This does make sense in theory, especially since you, you look at corporations. They have pricing power. They can raise their prices and pass along to consumers, which is kind of what a lot of them have done. Uh, obviously, corporations have higher costs, too. So you have to think about commodity inputs and that sort of thing. But um, considering margins remain near or at all-time highs, like this is kind of what's happened. But even if that's the case, high inflation is generally bad for the stock market. Why? Warren Buffett wrote a piece in 1977 for Fortune magazine called How Inflation Swindles the Equity Investor. Uh, inflation was scalding hot at the time, right? It had been running hot for a very long time, almost a decade. His main takeaway was that stocks are more similar to bonds than most people think, especially when it comes to a highly inflationary environment. Because, right, for bonds, it's not necessarily the rates rising that, that hurts as much as the inflation, right? It's, it's the real returns over the long term that can eat into bonds. So he talked about how it might not seem to make sense since bonds have a fixed fixed yield and stocks kind of have this return on equity which or earnings, which can vary. But his point was that if you look back at history, the ROE, the return on equity for U.S. corporations, is relatively sticky and stable over decades. He said it's like 12%. I, th I think it's actually maybe gone up a little bit since then. But uh, the problem is obviously the price people are willing to pay for that ROE can vary. But here's, here's a quote from Buffett. Your future results will be governed by three variables. The relationship between book value and market value, the tax rate, and the inflation rate. So there we are. 12%, which is the ROE, before taxes and inflation, 7% after taxes and before inflation, and maybe 0% after taxes and inflation. It hardly sounds like a formula that will keep all those cattle stampeding on TV. As a common stockholder, you will have more dollars, but you may not have as much purchasing power. So the whole thing is, is that inflation is going to eat into your ROE regardless of what happens to earnings. Because if you look at it, uh, the 1970s had really strong profit growth, right? It was up like 9.9% .9 per year. It was the, If you look back at the last nine decades of earnings growth, 1970s was the second largest earnings growth we've seen on a nominal basis. Duncan, do you know what the first one was? Care to make a guess? Uh, no. The, the 2010s has the largest profit growth of any decade going back to the 1930s, mainly because banks got decimated in 2008, but still. So the 70s was the second. Uh, unfortunately, that's great. It looks good on a nominal basis, but on a real basis, it, it really doesn't matter. Unfortunately, what this means is that high inflation tends to be bad for both stocks and bonds. Thanks a lot, Ben. You could have brought that attention to our attention. What, what's that Adam Sandler one yesterday? Things that could have been brought to my attention yesterday. Uh, P.S. If you're following along on my blog... I wrote about this 
exact relationship in February. Why the stock market doesn't like high inflation. I wish I would have taken my own uh, advice back then. Uh, at the time, I think the S&P was only down to 3%. I, uh, I guess I didn't think inflation was going to get as bad as it, as it was. Um, this, is a tr- this is not a true not to brag, though, because I certainly underestimated how much damage high inflation could cause and rising interest rates. But uh, that's the thing. I, I think that inflation just eats into your returns as an investor, whether you know it or not. Right. And you, you couldn't predict what your pals at the Fed were going to do. You know. Yeah, those jerks. See, this is the problem. People were excoriating the Fed for years, saying all they do is care about the stock market. The Fed never once said, we want the stock market to go up. This year, they said we want it to go down. Right? I, I just have to point out that you were giving Mike a hard time about granular, and you just said excoriating on, on a podcast. So Pull that straight out of my rear end. Come on. <laughs> um, one one follow-up I do have about that, that question, though, is, I, I mean, like like a wise a wise man wrote in, in a book that I've been reading, um, you know, uh, Saving for Retirement. Took um, it long enough. Jeez. <laughs> uh, but in, in there, I mean, it's the best thing you can do, right? The stock market is basically the best thing That's you can thing. do for, for inflation. I mean, over the short term, the stock market is going to be impacted by inflation. But over the long term, the stock market remains your best hedge against inflation. That's okay. that's the problem. So yes, yeah, the takeaway right. is not, so that's why you shouldn't invest in the stock market. Yeah, it's, it's just bad. over the short yeah. term, you're going to see some compression in valuations. And it's, yeah, it's not very good over the short run for stocks. Over the long run, the stock market remains the, because dividends grow above the inflation rate, earnings grows above the inflation rate. And, and that's why stocks do better than inflation over the long term. Yes, yeah, it still remains like your best bet. That's an important lesson for, for to make sure our younger and uh, noob investors yes. are taking away from Great this. point. Yes. All right. Let's do another one. Okay. Question three. This one's from Nate. Earlier this year, I sold some palladium bars I originally purchased in 2005. From my internet research, precious metals are categorized as collectibles and are taxed at a minimum rate of 28%, or maximum rate of 28%. Can I tax loss harvest stocks to offset the capital gains for my palladium sale? Uh, are there restrictions on what can be offset by tax loss harvesting other than the $3,000 of income per year? All right, let's bring in uh, the tax man himself, Bill Sweet, to answer this one. Tax Bill, man. I'm not going to lie. I had no idea what I have no idea what palladium is. I would have thought that was something that like Bond villain tries to steal. Yeah, it sounds like it belongs with. in a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I did not know you could buy it in bar form. I guess it's some sort of precious metal. Uh, it is something people can. Duncan told us he you can invest in it in ETF form, I guess. Yep. So. Tell us how the collectible stuff works, because I, I have heard this before, that commodities have a similar tax treatment to collectibles, how that works and how that interacts with uh, your stock losses, potentially. Yeah, so I'm fresh off my kid's Christmas concert, and we were not discussing Shea Stadium, Palladium, or EMC Squared, any of that. But uh, yeah, this is a collectible. And so, Ben, I, I know you're a big collectibles guy. Uh, some of our sponsors, for example, do great work there. So anything that's an art, or let's say rug, I know Duncan's a big rug guy, uh, antiques, metals, including... <laughs> ETFs backed by metals, uh, gems, stamps, comic books, coins, alcoholic beverages that you don't consume, guys. Uh, that That's the key. Uh, musical instruments and historical objects, such as the copy of the Constitution I keep in my basement. Uh, those are all subject to a maximum, maximum tax rate of 28%, right? So if your ordinary income rate is, let's say, 12%, 22%, or 24%, which where it is up to about $195,000 if you're filing single, uh, that would be actually just the the lower ordinary income rate. So really, the 28% thing really only applies for people making, let's say, $200,000 a year or more. But that said, not sure how many palladium bars we were talking about for for a guy here. Uh, ultimately, that 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 can add up. Uh, ben, the key question here is that, uh, you know, can I net this out against my other capital assets? And the answer, fortunately,
fundamentally is yes, is that like other gains from property or losses, and boy, have there been a lot of losses this year, you can net out your capital gains from your, your play. It all goes large. into the same bucket, right? All the exactly. losses and gains, net them out. Yeah, the, the technical answer is there's actually three buckets, right? So there's short-term, long-term, and then short-term, long-term from a partnership. But but yes, the concept is uh, the shorts net out the, 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 short, the short losses, net out the short gains, the long losses, net out the long losses, and it all goes into one big blender. And at the end of that, whatever's left, depending on the nature of it, that can be taxed at a maximum of 20%. For most people this year, it's going to have to be long-term capital gains because there's not many short-term capital gains. Not a whole year. lot. <laughs> no baking around. I mean, it, right. it is possible, right, if you got really lucky in the end of September. Um, but ultimately, yeah, that, that's the case. So yeah, I think I think you've still got time. You have about what six trading days left, maybe four or five trading days left in the year to go ahead and you know realize some some losses, right? Cryptocurrency generally is down 80-90% this year. Uh, so realize those losses, bake it off against your gains, and hopefully that'll make a dent in that in that tax that you're this, due in April. This might be a stupid question. First of all, I can't even imagine how you go about selling physical bars of a of a metal. Like I guess it's not Craigslist, but yeah, you don't have an exchange. Out. You just put it in a mailbox with a with a sticker. And well, but, comes but and so who? How's the price set? So like, I can't just go somewhere and sell it for fifty bucks a bar and take a huge loss. Well, there, right? have you ever seen those stores that say like we buy gold here? It's got to yeah. be something like that. <laughs> They're everywhere in New Jersey. Yeah. 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 But, so, but so, I mean, you can, you can walk in there with it. some metal and see what they'll do. For it just seems like someone could intentionally <laughs> take a take a big tax loss. I personally way, never right? sold a palladium bar before, so I I, I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I feel like you'd need like a nuclear reactor. It sounds like something like that to me. Do you have to as smelt opposed it? To a metal. Is there smelting involved? Yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. not sure either. But no, but um, congratulations. I mean, ultimately, if you've held that long, I mean, just about anything, you hold it for 20 years, generally, you get some price appreciation, even, even good beer. Except so. for my old Beanie Babies and mm-hmm. Pogs. Hmm. Yeah, but at the high there in what, 99. Okay, question four is from John. I'm about to rebalance my retirement accounts in January, and I'm thinking of switching all of my index holdings from mutual funds to ETFs. Do you see any reason not to do this? All right, here's the ETF pros. Lower cost, typically in a mutual fund, more tax mm-hmm. efficient, same exact strategy. The only thing I could think of that's easier with a mutual fund is you can automate purchases and sales easier in rebalancing. Right, a little easier. You can do that with a lot of some places with ETFs now. What, what do you think? Is there any reason not to do this? Yeah, it's it. No, I can't think of anything significant. Probably the only advantage that you would have from a five ticker mutual fund, Ben, is exactly what you just discussed. That ultimately the the systematic you know purchases tend to be a little bit easier because you're just doing that through the fund, right? You don't have to go through an exchange. Most exchanges will offer you commissionless trades, but but not all, right? So ultimately, you might pay some ticker charges. The other factor, Ben, I might just throw out. It's technical, but there's a bit of spread, right, with an ETF that you don't have to mess around with if a five ticker mutual fund. Every night, those things rebalance it. Net asset value, and basically you're just you're buying it net of any c- commission costs you might pay at net asset value versus an ETF where there might be a, a bit of a bid ask spread or, or premium or discount on on the trade. So that that's really the only factor. But I think this is a great year to make this switch. It's been a very difficult year for just about everybody in just about every asset class. And so if your capital gains have been cut by 20%, let's say on where you were this year, uh, t- you know, taxes are the primary reason why most of our investors, Ben, end up holding on to these legacy five ticker mutual funds. Uh, right. And the key difference though, it, it, you get this, the, the big benefit I would focus on is right now, like this week, probably right now, you're getting capital gains distributions from your mutual funds. So let's say a, a hypothetical, a, a US mutual fund, a five-tecker mutual fund, they need to distribute by year end 90% of what they realize in capital gains throughout the year. A year like this, it's not just that prices are down, but typically there's more redemptions, right? Investors tend to get spooked 
when their investments decline. And so even if you hold onto those shares for a five-ticker mutual fund, what tends to happen at the end of the year is you get whacked with a capital gains distribution. It just gets reinvested in the fund, but you have to pay tax basically on the actions of other investors. And, and so, as people make this shift, it's going to keep happening. I think so. I think so. So it, I think that there's a long tail, right? Probably 20, 30, 40 years. But yeah, ultimately, if you if you get ahead of it, and some some really awesome funds, some of the Vanguard mutual funds, some of the iShares, some of the other funds that are out there have had like 10%, 15% net asset value capital gains this year. So ultimately, it's, it's this, this process of do, 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 you bite the, do you bite the bullet? You know, do you, do you rip the Band-Aid off and just realize the gains and move on into the ETF and then not have to worry about this again? Because the, the neat thing about an ETF is it can trade those low basis securities, those stocks with the market. And so ETFs throughout the year, if you have a good fund manager, they're stepping up their basis probably every day of the market, whereas a five-ticket mutual fund cannot. That's the yeah, key it difference. Almost does, it almost doesn't feel fair to mutual funds. <laughs> yeah, no, it doesn't. But but like like dinosaurs, you know, they, they, they might be getting obsolete, right? So they still have a place, I think, in investing. But I think the ETF in, in the late 90s, that was, a, that was a strategic leap forward, sort of like the money market mutual fund was in the 1970s, 1980s. It just opened up the door to a new wave of investing and probably the thing that's going to replace ETFs, which we have been doing for our clients for almost three years now, the direct in indexing approach, right? So the, the market's constantly evolving, in my opinion, constantly getting better uh, ETF over mutual fund. I, I, think, I think now's the time. But they'll always have that extra character in the ticker. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. No. But but yeah, I think that's it. And now's the time, generally. Next question. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this question is from John, spelled with an H. The previous one was like Jonathan John. Uh, on episode 51, you address changing asset allocation as net worth increases. I have a follow-up question. Looking forward to 2026 when the federal estate tax exclusion reverts to 2017 levels, maybe between 6 and $7 million, uh, does it make sense to reduce risk as your net worth approaches this level? It seems like you have a partner on the upside, 40% estate tax, while the downside risk is all yours. Am I thinking about this correctly? This is a subtle not to brag here. I, I have right? no idea. We're thinking about yeah, this question, these portfolio so. rescue questions constantly impress me. The listeners with their seven million dollar portfolios. It's amazing. Bill, I have no idea how estate taxes work. Explain it to me and what this change is potentially coming down the line. Yeah. So should this should this person die before twenty twenty six to <laughs> uh, no save I would, on taxes? I would not okay. recommend dying uh, in order to okay. save on taxes. That generally Just checking. Yeah, would be putting literally the tax uh, dollar cover all our bases deal, here. Yeah, or whatever we want to say. But but no. But it's it's an interesting question. So but. What, what the listener's getting at is, unfortunately, you know, time, father time is undefeated, Ben. I, mean, I, hate to, I hate to break this to you, the both of you, but there, there will come a time when we have to settle our, our affairs or for our spouses or loved ones. And yeah, if you happen to pass away and your net worth is above whatever the estate tax exemption today, it's 12.9, so effectively $13 million per person. If you're uh, above that limit, there is a phased-in estate tax that applies. It starts at 12% and rolls all the way up to 40% uh, of, of assets. And so what the listener is getting at here is that ultimately, like you said, there's a partner, you know, potentially uh, to realize some of the gains uh, upon his passing so or her passing. So ultimately, again, I wouldn't wish death on anybody, but thinking about how to plan for this, I think the, the solution is very easy. You just do your best to stay below the limit. What the listener is getting at to explain it, uh, so right now, today, this very, or excuse me, next year, uh, the, the estate tax limit is close to $13 million. However, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the Trump era tax co uh, code change of 2017, that is set to expire. It is set to sunset in Congress uh, beginning in tax year 2026. 
And so at that time, we do expect the limit to revert. However, it depends on what Congress does between now and then. And as we're seeing this week, uh, they're rushing through, I'm not sure if this has made news, but like a $1.2 trillion spending bill. And so Congress tends to do things at the last minute. And I think my advice would be for somebody that's in between that range, let's say 7 and $13 million of assets, first of all, you won the game. <laughs> so uh, reducing your risk- But I isn't, isn't this kind of like your life. thing you always say, like, why would you not make more money just because you're paying taxes on that money? Precisely. Is that not the same thing here? Yeah. yeah. So, and, and then my point is that there's time, right? So like if, if this tax law is going to change potentially in January 2026, and we know what the limit is now, you can start gifting out assets to your heirs uh, in between now and then. Many states do not have a gift tax. New York among them. Many states do not have an estate tax at all. So you do have to pay attention to the- So this could be the kind of thing we could do charitable contributions too, right? Front load those. That's what I'm going. Yeah. You don't just have to gift assets to charity, although that's a great thing to do, right? And leave a bequest at your passing to get below that estate limit. Sit down with an estate planner and attorney, write your will a little bit differently to take advantage of this, or more so make that choice. Do I want my money to go to the federal government or do I want it to go to my to my library? Down, can down can you give your favorite charity, charity bars of palladium? That is definitely something you could do uh, <laughs> and is subject to the property rules and would be a great way to avoid the 28% tax. But the, the point here is like, talk to an estate planner. Yeah, this is very this. complex. And but you have time to do it. I think generally if your if your net worth is this high, absolutely. I think it's a great concept to think about lowering your risk if that's applicable. Sit down with a financial planner or CFP and think about it. But I also would sit down and talk to an estate planner. What do you actually want your money to do? If you don't care where it goes and you want to help finance the federal government, leave it alone, let it let it let it compound. So here's here's someone who 2022 was a good year for. It it had to decrease their net worth. <laughs> if, if they're still looking at it's it. Helping yeah. out with estate taxes. I think so. But the last thing, Ben, you know what the back tattoo is, uh, I don't want to take my jacket off right now, but it, it reads Roth IRA conversion. And so if, if, if the government is going to get 40% of your assets, a great way to lower your state tax is to voluntarily pay some income tax. And then that's less because again, whether it's a traditional IRA or Roth IRA, the 40% tax applies. So why not just fork that money over earlier and then your heirs will get a Roth IRA and just distribute that over 10 years, completely income tax free. Big nice. fan. Okay. All right. I Speaking like of it. Roth, we had a Roth question. We couldn't Ooh. leave without asking one more of those. Oh, I'm in the right place. Yeah. Derek, Derek coming me. in with the uh, the Roth question. Let's do it. Uh, with time, the percentage of our portfolio of it is Roth is less than 10% and getting smaller every year. At what dollar amount saved would it be beneficial for us to diversify and contribute retirement money into Roth or after-tax contributions? Should I, con- should I shift and make after-tax retirement contributions now, despite being in a high tax bracket, which will largely eliminate the largest tax deduction I take every year? We don't itemize deductions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right, he wants more Roth dollars working for him, which I'm sure you can get behind, Mr. Roth. Uh, What does he need to do to make this happen? So answer one is... It, this is a complex question, and we cannot give people direct advice here on this show. Shout out to our chief compliance officer, uh, Patricia Hetzfeld. But in general, what I would advise somebody to think about is, uh, you know, where, where's my, what is my current tax rate? And they indicate high uh, versus what is my future tax rate going to be? And that, to me, drives the traditional versus Roth conversation. Let me give you the Michael Kitsis answer, which I think in this scenario would be the right one, in that when you're contributing, I think it does make sense, especially if you're in a high tax bracket, which I would define as 32, 35, 37%. So we're talking people making $300,000 a year or more. Uh, Ultimately, I think it would make sense in that tax bracket to do the traditional first, right? Because ultimately, you can make a decision towards the end of the year, depending on your capital gains, depending on how many bars of palladium you put in the mailbox and stuck a a sticker 
on. Depending on your big picture scenario, you can make a choice to do a Roth IRA conversion late in the year, but ultimately you cannot go back, right? So it's a one-way street. Once you make that Roth conversion, thou shalt not undo it anymore. So I think it would make sense in this scenario with general, generally to do a traditional contribution throughout the year and then make a decision on whether to Roth convert when you have a low tax year, when you have a tax break, when there's something so you, else. So you're going. saying for most people making that Roth decision, you can wait till December and see how your year looks and kind of get a good idea and then decide whether you want to yeah, do it or not. Yeah, I think so. Still. For somebody that's in a high tax bracket, Ben, that's exactly it. Because if you're paying 32, if you're paying 37%, you probably don't want to add to that. And the ta- the, the, the listener's question uh, framework was, this is probably my largest tax deduction, my traditional 401k. I'm putting $20,000 a year away and I'm able to deduct that. Do I want to flip the switch? And I would say, again, no, you probably don't. But you can make that decision on a year-to-year basis and do it via Roth conversion. But I, I probably in this scenario would contribute to the 401k on a traditional Basis. And we want to mention, I talked about that we talked about this yesterday. 401k limit is going from 20,500 to 22,500 next year. Yeah, uh, you know, thanks thanks President Biden, right? Uh, inflation cuts both ways. And yeah, for savers that that's a really really good thing, right? So obviously if we could choose, we would say no inflation, but the good news is anything that's inflation adjusted, including your tax brackets, including your standard deduction, uh, that's going up along with inflation too to the tune of 789%. So, yes, uh, that that's that's a good thing for savers. Awesome. All right. The yeah. only other thing this person needs to do is ask their uh, employer to start having a Roth 401k, right? Yeah. And it's interesting, too, the, the omnibus bill, it looks like there might be a provision that might come out starting early next year for the employer match to be happening in Roth contributions. So that's interesting because right now- Hand up. Hand yeah, up. Any omnibus. Tax. Yeah. <laughs> omnibus. No, no idea. I got enough. Latin, right? No. I took Latin. Yeah, it's 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 six thousand pages of uh, potential tax law, and it's not even real tax law yet, right? Because it hasn't been passed. So, if you really want some bedtime reading, uh, I think that's it for Christmas Eve. Speaking of okay. of reading, uh, in this this book again, another another plug. <laughs> I, uh, Duncan, a company I, man. I, right. I I learned how recent four hundred one ks became a thing. I didn't know like been around like, very long, the late seventies, right? Yeah. right? Like I. I just, in my head, thought that they'd been around since at least like the 50s or something. That, that's why a lot of people need to give themselves a little bit of slack if you're not very well prepared for retirement. It has, it's a concept that hasn't been around very long. Yeah. It, right. it really hasn't. Yeah, most of the time you worked and then you died. That's my plan today, uh, hopefully in my 90s. Um, but no, the Roth <laughs> hasn't been around since, I think, 95 it was signed into law. I don't think that you could do a Roth area until 1997. So yeah, we're only looking at 25 years. And that's not enough compounding for me, guys. I need some more. Yeah. All right. I'll always take more. more. Give it all to your kids, Bill. Always yeah. more compounding, right? More compound. Yeah. Compound gains. Okay. Uh, so last but not least, when looking for a CPA or tax preparer, what are the smart questions to ask? How do I know if the fee is fair? Uh, is there any correlation between net worth and the complexity of a tax return? Is there an advantage to seeking a CPA whose practice is within one's own state? So that's kind of a cheat because that's multiple questions in one, but uh, but they're yeah, good. Th- this is a this is a good. I'm I'm actually surprised with all the tax questions that we get that we haven't gotten this one yeah sooner. Yeah, I mean obviously I think maybe everyone just assumed Bill would do pro bono tax work for everyone <laughs> emailing into the show. Uh, I did have, have I did have somebody send me a Chipotle gift card, which was very so kind. Thank you, John. Beyond asking that. friends and family, like where do you even begin trying to find some answers to these questions? Yeah, so like like any other professional, uh, ultimately this is this is more art than science, right? So you can read reviews, you can do X Y Z, but but the question was, what smart questions can I ask? So th- this would be my take on it. I think the the big software providers, the turbo taxes of the world, uh, the Intuits, the tax layers, I think they do a very, very good job for the for the for the purpose of commoditized tax returns. So I would separate in my mind 
the work that is actually a tax filing, which in my opinion can be done mostly by software. Who knows? ChatGPT might come out with a tax filing service. We'll do it all through AI next year. And I think the cost for that is somewhere around 50 or $100 and maybe more if you're filing multiple states. But, but that to me is table stakes, right? So what questions should you ask a tax professional that you might want to be working with? My opinion, the cardinal sin, in my opinion, of most of the tax professional community is they are driving while looking at the rearview mirror. They do not care about what happens this year. They don't care what happens next year. They care about what happened last year because ultimately that's the business model. Can I crank out a tax return and charge three hundred, four hundred, five? We should also full right? disclosure here. You used to run a CPA tax practice. Right? I did. I did. And now you run a tax practice for us, but it was an actual like tax preparation. Tax filing, all that stuff. Yeah, and we have tried uh, through through our two years, and Bill Arturoni, and big shout-outs, because he's done amazing work here in the space and is taking a well-deserved week off, so I hope he's not watching today. But ultimately, he's spending time with his, with his child. But ultimately, uh, we have tried to solve for this. And w- the way we've tried to solve for this is by setting up a series of meetings throughout the year that's in, in concert with our, our work as a, advisors and start to look ahead. We build a tax, pra- a t- a tax return during the year, and then we, we sort of lay it all up with this fourth quarter meeting. So I think that back to the back to the question like i would engage with the cpa and find out how much forward tax planning can i expect to receive from this relationship are we going to be able to meet in october november december are you going to be on vacation or is this something we can do because on 1231 in about a week ben it's all it's too late it's too late to make a charitable contribution make a charitable contribution on january 2nd that counts in 2023 and so i would be looking if you're going to work with somebody and work with a human being i would be like trying to engage their skills and get some forward tax advice what can i be doing during so talking the tax to someone in like five years, january so. or february might help out because you're getting ahead of things a little bit i think so but ultimately that that's tax season right so like i would probably just go with whatever you're doing this year and and be looking for the next tax preparer maybe in july right june july after they've been able to take vacation. They're coming back. They're sort of thinking about, okay, how many people do I have an extension? That, in my opinion, is a time to engage. Last point I want to make, there are certain states that are very complex. California, New York, Oregon among them, for example, or states can be very simple. So there's no blanket answer here. Texas, Tennessee, Washington, they don't have a state tax, right? So you don't have to worry about it at all. Pennsylvania has a flat tax, not very complicated. So I think it really all depends on your specific situation, unfortunately, which is a terrible answer for an interview show. Um, if you have a lot of palladium bars, probably something you want to talk about in advance. But I think the general gist is, how much forward tax planning am I going to get? Because that, I think, is the big advantage you get working with a professional versus software. My biggest thing, talk to more than one person or yep. more than one firm. Yep. You can compare and contrast a little bit yep. just to know what they're going to give you what you can expect, what the fees are, all that stuff. Talk to more than one person. Looks like you've got a pretty nice TAM here, Bill. I'm seeing in the the poll in the chat right now, 65% of people do not um, use a CPA right now. So well, there's some pretty, pretty good. Yeah, yeah. the software is very good, Duncan. It's great. It's great. But but like anything else, it's are, are you getting what you're paying for, right? I and started out with TurboTax and it worked until things got complex for me. Then I had to move on to Bill Suite. I used to do, yeah, I used to do my own and I would always like upgrade for the like audit protection because I was like, of course, I have no idea what I just did. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's worked out. I mean, the audit rate is hysterical. That sounds like well. the, that's not like yeah. the warranty at Best Buy. Like, that, that can't be worth it, right? There's no way TurboTax is going to bat for me if the U.S. government comes after me, right? Yeah, I don't think so. I, okay. I, I'm not going to render an opinion. <laughs> Didn't but, yeah, SBF, I, like, SBF at uh, FTX, they were using TurboTax, right? 
Isn't it like <laughs> well, for real? No, I'm I'm not. That's not a joke. I saw. No, they, they were using QuickBooks. QuickBooks, which, okay, which right. I'm very yeah. familiar with. Okay, but, right. but yes, gotcha. but I, I find <laughs> it great for a small business. But yeah, we're we're we we weren't we weren't running anything near that. that okay, line. I got gotcha. you. But no, but it, I, isn't it like the insurance policies you get for if you go buy a toaster or a microwave? Like that's all pure profit for the company, right? Because yeah. they very very rarely end up replacing that. So yeah, I, I I would agree. But but I think it's like anything else. Like, are you getting what you pay for, and are you valuing the relationship? That that to me is it. And some people do a great job but most people don't all right we are off until the new year everyone's taking a break Ooh. duncan you met a bunch of our viewers at the live show last week right yeah no it was great at nasdaq and then at perfect pint afterwards uh met dave uh you know from michigan um he was awesome met george a chef in colorado springs um he's very nice uh talked with a phd academic researcher from california we had all, all kinds of really cool people there so was, very intelligent fun. amount of viewers here don't we definitely good. yeah definitely Big fan Thank you. For yeah. so thanks for everyone possible. for tuning in. Thanks always for the people who show up live in the chat. Thanks for everyone for listening and watching on YouTube. We appreciate all your feedback. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Remember, if you have a question for us, ask the compound show at gmail.com. We will be back in the new year with plenty of new questions for you. See you then. Oh, and Merry happy Christmas birthday, Sean. Sean. Happy birthday, Big Sean. Sean. Yeah, that's right. Happy yep. birthday. <laughs> See you, everyone. Oh, man. So close to Christmas. That's tough. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is brought to you by Ritholtz Wealth Management. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities mentioned on this podcast.